I want to get back to Nehemiah today, and I want to close this out in the next sermon or two. Probably take two anyway. But uh, Nehemiah 8 is full of some good stuff, and I want to get there. So chapter 8 of of the book of Nehemiah. Now they've been rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem and got it done. Now in chapter 8, and all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. So they came with a singular cry, as if it were one man crying out, except that there were a lot of them, and they had the same question, the same desire, the same purpose. So they came in unison, in that sense, as one man. And they spoke to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Eternal had commanded to Israel. Now they had come there for a renewal. They had come there to renew Jerusalem, to rebuild the wall, to move in, and to dwell there after having been in captivity and release after 70 years. There was a job to do. So they were very concerned about it. They'd been talking about it, so they approached Ezra and said, Bring the law of God. We want to hear it. Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women. So not just the men, but women were included in the congregation, just as they were in the New Testament church. And all it could hear with understanding. So those of a ready mind those who were willing to listen and to learn. Perhaps there were those who were not willing to listen, didn't want to hear, thought they had their minds made up, unteachable in other words. They had their own view, their own purpose, their own religion, if you will, were not teachable. So it was the men and the women and all they could hear with understanding. Upon the first day of the seventh month, now, this was the Feast of Trumpets, first day of the seventh month. So they all gathered on the Feast of Trumpets. And he read therein, before the street that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday, or from the light, my margin says. Uh, traditionally, the day began at 6 a.m. and ended at the work day. 6 a.m. and ended at 6 p.m., 12-hour work day. We're spoiled today in America. We believe in an eight-hour work day but traditionally it was a 12-hour work day. I think probably we should understand that we are given spiritual responsibilities and we should probably limit our work days to 12 hours and not work beyond that because there are other responsibilities that are important. So some of us tend to work, I know I did years ago, 14, 16, 18 hours a day. And uh, maybe I should have limited myself to 12 and done other more important things the rest of my free time. Uh, You see what I mean. It's like the Sabbath command. People say, well, I keep the seventh-day Sabbath. They don't always read the whole Sabbath command. What does it say? Six days shall you labor and do all your work, The seventh day is the Sabbath, and you rest. So part of the Sabbath command is working the other six days. That's part of the command. So it is 
a command of both commission and omission. You're commissioned to keep the Sabbath, and you're not to omit working on the other days of the week to do all your work. That doesn't mean you can't have some leisure time and some fun time and some play time. But in six days, you're supposed to get all your work done so you can rest on the Sabbath. Okay. They read from morning till midday. Must have, it may have been a six-hour reading. We think two-hour services are plenty, don't we? <laughs> we used to think the three- and four-hour services we got in the early days of Worldwide were too long. Well, maybe they weren't. I don't know. Of course, on, on Sabbath days, we would keep, would have a three or four hour service in the morning and then would have a three or four hour service in the afternoon. And on a Friday before the weekly Sabbath and Feast of Tabernacles, we'd also have another service on Friday night. So, uh, we got plenty if we could endure it. But I don't know that that would be something that would have been done from there on to have that long a service. But it was a time of great renewal. It was a time of great interest. It was a time when people realized the law had not been kept and that they had been in pagan Babylon and had not been following the ways of God and they wanted to come and turn back to God. So their interest level was much higher than it would be at any other time. And they were able to listen that long. And those that could understand, again it says, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They wanted to know what God said. Much as I think we're being renewed now, and we want to know what God says about a plethora of subjects, even as the paper we're studying now about the baptism in Matthew 28, 19, and the triune or the trinity baptism and whether that is valid or not. We want to know the truth. What should be done? How should it be done? Well, it should be attentive to God's scriptures and read them carefully to see what he wants done and what is true and what is untrue. All right, go on to verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they made had made for the purpose. So they knew they were going to ask him to do this on trumpets, uh, and they prepared ahead of time and built a pulpit of wood for him to stand up on so that all the people can be seen. Remember it said in the last chapter that there were 42,303 score. Uh, you don't stand on the ground and address 43,000 people and have them all see and hear. So they built a pulpit of wood. It says a tower in one place. It must have been pretty high so that he could project over the entire crowd. Now, there are those in the church today, across in the greater church of God, who do not want to see a minister stand on a uh, raised surface at all. No stage, no steps to step up, because they say that puts them above the people, and that the attitude is wrong, and it's wrong to do that. Well... Have they ever read Nehemiah? I wonder. It is not wrong. In fact, it was done on purpose, and it was done in righteousness for a specific purpose. Now, we don't need it right here because we don't have that big a congregation, but if we had five, six, seven, eight thousand, and I've spoken to groups that big, 
uh, you need to be up so that you can be seen and heard better. It just makes sense. It is not necessarily a matter of ego or vanity. Now, can it be? Yes, you can misuse anything. And the attitude that goes with it is what is wrong, not the standing up to be seen and heard. Uh, they'd made it for that purpose, and beside him stood uh, 13 men. I'm not going to read the names for sake of time, because I don't have any particular comment on those names. I didn't look them all up to see what they meant, but that could be an interesting little Bible study in itself. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. So he stood up, he was up high enough that he could open the book in the sight of everyone. For he was above all the people. Now that will grate on some nerves, and some people who heard this would not like to hear it. I'm sorry, that's what the book says. And it not only says it, it emphasizes it, does it not? And I, I, I guess I'm making a point of this. I don't think anyone here has a problem with that. I'm making it a point because I've heard it brought up and I've heard people get very, very emotional about it. The minister should not raise himself up in any way above the people. Well, what should we do? Should we sit here or should I crawl up under this thing? And you could hear muffled noises coming out from behind. I need something to lay my Bible on and perhaps to lean upon here and there. But it's amazing what people will get bent out of shape about. I mean, little things like this that are so clearly okay and were recorded in Scripture and repeated and canonized by God. So Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, when he opened it, all the people stood up. Should we all stand up through the entire service? I don't know whether we could arrange, I don't know whether we could even do it or not. We're so old and crippled. But uh, they paid attention, in other words. They had respect for what was about to be read. And I don't know that they would have done that from then on, uh, but it was a time of renewal and great interest, and they stood up to do it. Now, does that mean they stayed standing up through the entire reading? I don't know. But as he opened the book, they stood up to give respect and appreciation to the words of God. Well, that would have been good. In a way, I think we do that. We stand up to sing the psalms, the hymns of God before the service. We give honor and glory to God before we address his word. We stand to pray and give him honor and glory before we sit down to then digest and hear. So perhaps we are, in principle, fulfilling this. Verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Eternal, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. I take it that means that he prayed. He blessed the Eternal, and the people said, Amen. So there you have an example for an opening prayer before discussing the Word of God and the people saying, So be it. Amen, amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Eternal with their faces to the ground. So I think that as he prayed, they did bow their heads and even lifted their hands in unison to say, I agree, lifting their hands to God. 
and worship God with their faces to the ground. That shows that is a position of humility and meekness and acceptance. Now, I find it very difficult to do uh, at a football game, which I used to go to years ago, and they would have the invocation by the Protestant preacher, and people would bow their heads. I just stood and held my head up. I was not going to bow to a false god I knew they were praying to. Uh, I won't do it at a funeral or sometime when I, uh, someone is praying, and they are not, I know, of God. I think they are, but I still don't feel like bowing my head. I just stand there quietly and respect their time and their uh, opportunity to pray as they see fit, but I'm not going to bow my head or say amen. I'm not going to say so be it to a Protestant or Catholic prayer, or Hindu or Buddhist either, for that matter. I'll just quietly stand and respect their what they're doing. I'm not going to uh, try to stop them or interrupt them or shoot them or anything, but I'm also not going to acquiesce and bow my head and give acceptance to what they're doing. Think about that one. I'll do that before God. And it mentions these men again, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book, and the law of God distinctly, they weren't mealy-mouthed about it, they read it right out boldly, uh, and caused them to understand the reading. Now notice, understanding is mentioned in verse 7, and caused them to understand the reading in verse 8. In other words, they expounded it. They preached it. They talked about it. They taught from it. They didn't just read the law and expect everyone to understand all the ramifications and implications therein. They expounded it. They taught it. They explained the meaning thereof. That's what preaching is all about. It's teaching and helping people to understand the things of God. I know when I'm sitting listening to a sermon, I often see an angle or an understanding or a better way of seeing something than perhaps I had before. I come to understand it better by someone giving an analogy or telling a story or putting it in his own words or whatever it might be to reiterate and show uh, what it means. That's what they were doing. So here is an Old Testament uh, example of the preaching that was done in the New Testament where understanding was given. When Paul wrote the books of the Bible, Ephesians, Galatians, Corinthians, Romans, and so on, Thessalonians, Hebrews, what was he doing? Instead of speaking audibly, he was explaining the law of God and the way of God in a letter. He was preaching by letter. And when he was there in person, he preached and expounded by word. That's the way they did it. And all those who say you shouldn't preach or there shouldn't be preachers and we should sit around a table and discuss it are ignoring the fact that the Bible was given as sermons, much of it, much of the New Testament, and recorded and canonized by God. And everything that Paul taught that we know today was either by a sermon by mail or a sermon in person that was recorded. But he was not against preaching and teaching in the church of God by the ministry. And that is so very, very clear. How can people miss that? There's only one way you could miss it if you read the Bible 
And that's because you don't want to know that. You don't want to believe that. And therefore you ignore so many scriptures and stick to one or two that are enigmatic and hard to understand in the first place. And ignore all the so very, very obvious ones. People do that, like turtles pulling their head in when they don't want to hear something. Anyway, verse 9, And Nehemiah, which is the Tirshatha, or the uh, governor, he had been appointed by the king, remember, and Ezra the priest, who had done the temple building, was still there, uh, the scribe and the Levites that taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the eternal your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Now why did they weep? They wept because they had forgotten the law of God. They were not following the law of God. And they were afraid. They were conscience smitten. They felt guilty. And they were upset because they had gone so far from God. So here was a people who had asked that the law be read because they didn't know it. They'd forgotten it. They wanted it read. And when it was read, they wept. They said, oh, I have gone so far from God. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to them from whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our God. Neither be you sorry, for the joy of the eternal is your strength. They were keeping the Feast of Trumpets, but they weren't joyful. They realized how sinful they had become, how wrong they had been, how they had gotten so very far from God in the land of Babylon and that they needed repentance and renewal. So they were having trouble keeping the Feast of Trumpets in the spirit in which God intended it. So Ezra said, don't worry about it. I know your sinners, you know your sinners. We're going to do something about this, but this isn't the day to worry about it. This is a day to be full of joy, because it pictures the return of Christ, Feast of Trumpets. Now, whether he knew that or not, I don't know. But it was a day that they had been commanded in the law to keep as a joyous, holy day before God. Now, where were they going to get their strength? They knew they had a lot to change, a lot of growing to do, a lot of repenting to do. But he told them where their strength was. It was in the joy of the eternal. Where... Will you and I find the strength, the power, the ability to overcome, to grow, and to change by having joy in our Savior and his Father? That's where we get the strength is from them. He knew that they would face some difficult issues and they would have to repent. But on that day, which was to be a joyous day, he reminded them that's where their strength to do what they needed to do would come from so joy in this holy day. Keep it as a joyous day, even though you have a lot to do. You know, even though we are not what we ought to be, we do know God, we do have God's Spirit, and we can call on Him to help us overcome and to grow and to do the things we need to do. 
And that's where our joy and our strength comes from. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be you grieved. This isn't the day to grieve about your sins. This is the day to joy in God. You can grieve later, and we'll see as we go on in the context that that's exactly what they did. Right after the Feast of Tabernacles, they called a fast. Two days after the Feast of Tabernacles, they called a fast. Because they realized they had work to do. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions, that is to uh, give food to those who did not have or who were poor, give portions to them, that's what that phrase means, and to make great joy. Mirth, I think, is a, in modern English, is a bad word. Mirth uh, is more like raucous joke-telling and just having fun for the sake of fun in, in our language today. So it's an antiquated word, or perhaps poorly translated. might have been a valid word in 1611 when this was translated, but it's not a good word today. What does New King James say? Does anybody have that handy? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But great joy would be better. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now, they weren't keeping them all, but they did understand them, and they understood their strength was to be in God, and that was enough to have joy about. We'll leave the overcoming and the repenting and the changing for a little later. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, to Ezra the scribe, even understand the words of the law. Now, the first day of the seventh month was the Feast of Trumpets. They gathered again on the second day of the month. Why? Why? Was it just that they were so eager to learn that they said, well, let's go ahead and meet again tomorrow? Consider this thought. Piece of trumpets that year might have fallen on a Friday. So on the second day of the month, they would have gathered on the Sabbath to keep the Sabbath and to continue the reading of the law. Now what significance does that have? Well, quite a bit, I guess. That's because the Jews don't want back-to-back -back Sabbaths in the fall. So they would postpone if the piece of trumpets fell on a Friday, they'd postpone it to another day. Or the Day of Atonement, if it fell next to the Sabbath, they'd postpone it to another day. That's the one they really feared, was atonement. But they would adjust the fall holy days, and if the spring holy days happened to fall that way because of the fall adjustments, they couldn't fix it, so they just allowed it. But this might have been one of those times. I don't know that, it's just a question. Uh, which could prove to be so someday. So anyway, on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the Levites, Ezra, even understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Eternal had commanded by Moses that, they, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. So this was right before the Feast of Tabernacles. And they read in the law, we're supposed to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and we're supposed to dwell in booths. They've been reading Leviticus 23:42, I think it is. And that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth to the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. Now, it's interesting, if you go back to Jeremiah, I'm going to turn back there for a minute, Leviticus 23. 
I want to make a point. Leviticus 23 and verse 42, it says, You shall dwell in booths seven days, and all that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. Now, I heard a minister, one to whom many of you listened quite a bit, and I did too for quite a while, had some association with, say that there is no command to make booths, and that that would have stripped every tree in Jerusalem, and it was obvious that they didn't have to make booths. That was the way he taught Leviticus 23, verse 42. Now, if it says dwell in them, how are you going to do it unless you build them? I wonder. But he said there's no command here to make booths. It just says you shall dwell in booths. Uh, where, where did that go? I lost it here. Because it, it says that they took the branches, verse 40. You shall take you on the first day. That was actually on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. They were to take those. Uh, but it doesn't actually say here that you are to build them, does it? Not in so many words. It doesn't say you shall take those limbs off of those trees and build yourself a booth. It doesn't say it in so many words, does it? But isn't the implication pretty clear, I would think? And yet somebody says they weren't commanded to live in booths, or to build booths, put it that way, just to live in them, and said that that did not need to be done as a result of this scripture. Well, I don't think that's the way Ezra and Nehemiah saw it, do you? What did we just read here in Leviticus, I mean in Nehemiah 8, verse 15, that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities, saying, Go forth to the mount and fetch these, to make booths as it is written. They saw the implication pretty clearly that they were to make booths, build booths. We had a minister that we respected quite a bit who said, you don't, that isn't what it said in Leviticus 23. We must be very careful. We must be very careful to read the context and understand what the scriptures say. You can take it out of context, ignore part of it, or ignore another scripture that sheds more light on it, and come up with a wrong conclusion so very, very easily. We need to be careful. Verse 16, So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. So they came out of their homes and lived in a temporary booth through the Feast of Tabernacles. The word back in Leviticus 23 is succoth, which means temporary dwellings. Now, we have chosen to use tents or metal tents or various ways of accomplishing this without taking actual branches, and perhaps that fulfills the spirit of that law. I don't know. Maybe we ought to be going up to the mountain and getting us a bunch of pine branches and cedar limbs and so on and making ourselves a little actual booth. The wind could blow through it. I wonder if God would mind if we put some poles up and put plastic around it first and then put the branches on to slow the wind down. I'd just talk him. I don't know uh, exactly how he would have us do this. That's the way we've done it to this point. Well, we went to the feast somewhere uh, and we counted a motel as a temporary booth or a tent in Big Sandy or whatever. Perhaps that bears some 
need for thought. Anyway, let's go on. Verse 17, And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths, for since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, to that day not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. They just hadn't done it for a long, long time. And in back captivity to Babylon, they had forgotten about it. So they were very happy to do it. <laughs> Verse 18, Also day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according to the manner. So there gives you uh, the administrative policy of having a service every day during the Feast of Tabernacles. It's right here in the Bible is the way that they properly kept the Feast of Tabernacles. Now going on to chapter 9. Now in the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths, clothes, and earth upon them. So they kept the Feast of Trumpets joyfully. They kept the Feast of Tabernacles joyfully. And two days after the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, they proclaimed the fast. They went ahead and put off this turning to God with fasting until the feasting days were done. Then they immediately turned back to fasting because having read the law, all those days they realized they had a lot to do. Does this sound like us at all? <laughs> you know, uh, the Bible is always new. There is so much here of renewal and the things that people forgot and needed to get back to. So on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers or Gentiles and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So the purpose of the fast that they proclaimed right after the Feast of Tabernacles was to be willing to admit their sins, to confess those sins, and to begin to separate themselves from the world around them. Now, it was a physical separation racially during that time. We know today that we are all one in Christ, and there is neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female in Christ. We're all the same. Now, are we male and female? As I look across the audience, that's my perception. Uh, are we all of the same race? No. But in spirit, we're all one. That's what counts. So, how are we to separate ourselves today compared to the way they separated themselves then? The Gentile nations were not chosen of God. They were not called out as Abraham was called out to be separate from the nations of the world. They, they were called to be racially separated. We are called today to be spiritually separated. And even here in the end time, we found scriptures that say that we are to physically separate ourselves as much as possible by leaving the cities and going and dwelling in the wilderness. God wants us to be away from this world. That we not partake of her sins, nor her plagues. If you stay where the plagues come, the plagues are going to come on you. We have to separate ourselves. So that's what they propose to do in their fast. Turn to God, admit their sins, and change what needed changed. Make everything right that they could possibly make right. 
That should be one of our fundamental goals. Part of our main focus is to fix and to repair and to straighten out everything we possibly can find that we are doing wrong. To get it right. From the smallest to the greatest. Every principle. To live by every word of God. The big commands and the little commands. To do everything we possibly can to get it right. Remember, Christ said that they were nitpicking on some small issues, speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and forgetting the weightier matters of the law. He did say you're supposed to do the small things, but don't forget the big things. He was in, essentially saying you've got to do it all, and you're just doing the little stuff and not doing the big stuff. But you do the little stuff and the big stuff. Not one jot or one tittle of the law will pass away. Is the big stuff more important? You bet it is. But is the little stuff important? Yes, it is. They stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the eternal their God one-fourth part of the day, that would be three hours, and another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the eternal their God. So they spent another three hours talking about the sins of the nation and of themselves as individuals and what needed to be fixed. Read the law for three hours, discuss it for three hours, and confess where you've not kept it. As a part of renewal, that's what they went through. Remember in Ezra, they even gave up their wives and children that were not of Israel, racially speaking. Now that was something when they found out they were doing wrong that they could correct. It was painful. There was a lot of wailing. There were a lot of tears. There was a lot of hurt because I'm sure those men loved those wives and they loved those children and the wives and children loved those men. But if they weren't of the race of Israel and could be proved to be so in genealogy, they were required to give up those wives and children, to put them away, not live with them anymore. Put them out of the camp of Israel. That's a tough one to call. But that's what they did. And that's what Ezra required of them. And as we get to the end of the book of Nehemiah, we'll find that that's what is required of them, was required of them. And it says here in verse 2, that that was part of what they were doing, separating themselves from all strangers. I imagine in their three hours of discussion that day, that they went through the family tree, each family, and tried to determine which of them were of the blood of Israel and which were not. Now, we have to determine at some point who is truly of God converted and separated from this world and who is not through the fruits of repentance and change. Zerubbabel, remember, will be given the plumb line to measure spiritual uprightness, to determine who should be a part of the congregation and who should not be. There are those in the church today who would chafe at any such indication that a man could make a judgment on whether I should be in the church or not but it's godly, and it's Bible. 
And Paul was very clear to the first the Corinthians in First Corinthians five that that man who was blatantly and openly sinning should be separated from the congregation until he repented. So those judgments are biblical, and men made those judgments, whether we like it or not. And it's coming again that way, and will have to be determined. Does that have to be mean? No. Does that have to be onerous? No. If we're humble, if we're meek, if we're repentant, if we're obeying God, I think those fruits should be quite obvious. If we're unteachable, intractable, pull away the shoulder and have a stiff neck and show a lot of ego and vanity and pride and are not willing to be taught, that becomes fairly obvious fairly quickly, doesn't it? It's not that hard to judge. And God has put that in the ministry, and he will give it specifically to Zerubbabel to come at the end time. We may not always like what God does, but if it's in Scripture, and God says he's going to do it, and does it, and we reject and pull away the shoulder, as ancient Israel tended to do, then does not that show an unrepentant attitude? God had to tell Samuel, they're not really rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. He told Samuel what to do, and what to say. And when he said it, people rejected it, because they looked upon Samuel as just a man. But God does work through men. Sorry to have to tell you, but he does. And every last one of them but one has his own problems. It's easy to disrespect men. And it's easy for men to go beyond their bounds. It is very difficult for any human being to govern himself properly according to the ways of God. I don't care who he is. Always has been. And everyone has failed to do it perfectly, except one. And thankfully, we can all lean on him and ask for forgiveness through him. But that's the way God has ordained it, and it's the way it has been and will be. Until Christ returns and makes us kings and priests and do it that way. Verse 4, Then stood upon the stairs of the Levites uh, certain men and cried with a loud voice to the eternal their God. Then the Levites, Joshua and the others, said, Stand up, and bless the eternal. Starts a prayer right here. Uh, it mentions Joshua first, uh, the Levites. I suppose one man prayed the prayer. You, you, when, when we pray, uh, you know, you're not going to have eight or ten men all praying in unison and saying the same words. I don't think it came down that way. Uh, when we have someone give an opening or a closing prayer, we all bow our heads in submission uh, to that prayer, and if we agree with it, we say amen, or so be it, and acknowledge it as such. So probably, this was one man giving the prayer and everyone else giving respect and honor to it. It's a long, fairly long prayer here, as scriptural prayers go, but I, I want to read it. There's an awful lot in it that is important for us to grasp and understand. I want to do a series 
soon uh, of sermons on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, I think that that is a very important thing for us to consider uh, because there's a lot in Scripture that says, look to them. You'll see that in this prayer as well. And it's not just something that's Old Testament, but what does Paul do in Hebrews 11? He goes through and names the essentially righteous people of the Old Testament. doesn't name them all, but a great number of them, and emphasizes that they are an example for us to follow. And that is a New Testament way of looking at things, is to go back and understand what the faithful men of old did. That's, that Old Testament is still there for us to learn from and from those people. And certainly that is an important part of the end-time work of God, is to consider Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'll prove that to you when we get there. Anyway, let's read the prayer and see that that element is in it. Stand up and bless the eternal your God forever and ever. And blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Praying in the same manner that Christ said when he gave the model prayer there in Matthew. First thing you do is address God in his glory when you start to pray. That's what was done here. You, even you, are eternal alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein the seas, and all that is therein, and you preserve them all, and the host of heaven worships you. You can't help but get you in a thankful and reverent and uh, respectful attitude if you begin a prayer in this manner. You are the eternal, the God, who did choose Abram and brought him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name of Abraham. God has always drawn his people away from that which is pagan and wrong and taken them out to do his work his way. Nothing new. And found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and you have performed your words for you are righteous. So they were standing in the land that God had given Abraham when they made this prayer. Site of the original Jerusalem, I'm sure. And did see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry by the Red Sea, and showed signs and wonders upon Pharaoh, and on all his servants, and on all the people of his land, for you knew that they dealt proudly against them. So did you get you a name as it is this day still remembering what God had done for his people. And you did divide the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deeps as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them in the day by a cloudy pillar, and in the night by a pillar of fire. Reminds me of Isaiah 4 and Zechariah 2, where he says he's going to do this very same thing here in the end. So this isn't just ancient history. This is prophesied to be repeated. This time he'll deliver his people by an earthquake, not by parting the sea. You came down also upon Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses your servant. 
and gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst, promised them that you should go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not to your commandments. So they address God and then they address the problems that followed, including their own. Zechariah, prophecy for the end-time church, starts out in Zechariah 1, saying, Be not as your fathers who rejected God and pulled away the shoulder and stiffened their neck. But listen, listen, learn, and follow. They hearken not to your commandments and refuse to obey. Neither were mindful of your wonders that you did among them. They were willing to forget that. They just didn't want to do what God said to do. We have a lot of people in the church today that find a part of God's Word something they don't want to do and therefore will ignore very plain scriptures and stick to little ones that they think proves their position. And all it is is an attitude of rebellion and not wanting to do what God has said to do. Human nature has not changed. They weren't mindful of the wonders but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. That was done back in Numbers 14, if you want to go back and read it. But you are a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and forsook them not. So even sometimes when we are rebellious, even sometimes when we have our human nature well up and our pride and our ego and we want to do things our way, it doesn't mean that God automatically and utterly rejects us. He understands that we're human. He understands how we think and what our emotions are like and what we've experienced in life. And he's patient and merciful and willing to forgive. So, yes, we're supposed to do what God says. But we can be thankful that every time we have a rotten, wrong attitude, he doesn't blot us out because he doesn't. He gives us a chance to change it. Yes, when they had made them a molten calf and said, This is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and had wrought great provocations. Those are things that would really provoke God. He's a jealous God. And when they make a great calf, see, in ancient terminology, God was looked upon as a bull because of his strength and power. So when they made a calf, a golden calf, that was something they were throwing directly in God's face. You aren't the bull of the woods. Our calf is. <laughs> See what they were doing? Yet you in your manifold mercies forsook them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein they should go. Now, those people just simply would not repent, however, and their carcasses all fell in the desert and only their children went in to the promised land. But God was patient with them all 40 years, didn't blot them out. You know, it would have been real easy to say, well, all you people of a certain age aren't going into the promised land, so why wander around out here in the wilderness all these years and go through all the trials, troubles, and tribulations that you're going to go through I think I'll just blot you out. Sun up tomorrow, you're all going to die. And your children will be left, and I'll go ahead and scoot them on in since they're going anyway. 
It's not the way he did it. He made them go through all 40 years and all die out there and let their children go through the desert and the difficulties before they could go into the promised land. God was merciful. Uh, verse 20, you gave also your good spirit to instruct them and withheld not your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. So he fed and watered them even though they had raunchy, rotten attitudes. God causes rain on the just and on the unjust. He is not an unrighteous, unmerciful God. But he's going to give salvation to the just, not to the unjust. Yes, forty years did you sustain them in the wilderness, so that they lack nothing, their clothes wax not old, and their feet swelled not. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations, and did divide them into corners, so that they possessed the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Their children also multiplied as the stars of heaven, and brought them into the land, concerning which you had promised to their fathers that they should go in to possess it. This isn't really a selfish prayer, is it? This prayer is all about God, his great glory, how he delivered, how he was merciful. They've not asked anything yet, or he is not in this prayer. Ours can go very quickly from, dear God in heaven, help me. Dear God in heaven, give me what I want. It's so easy for us to go there. But here's a wonderful example of how we give glory, credit, praise, honor, and reverence to God, and we may have some supplication to make, but let's recognize who he is and what we are and what our forefathers have been and give him that due before we ask. No, I mean, there are times when the car is going off the road where God help me, you know, you don't have time to, to develop a prayer like this, but this is the way Christ said to pray there in Matthew, basically as a general rule. Uh, verse 24, So the children went in and possessed the land, and they subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. See, when you remind God of all the things he's done, what's it doing? It's building faith in you. Now, God has not forgotten all the things that he's done. Who tends to forget what he's done? We do. It's hard to keep ourselves reminded of all the things that God has done. It's easy to remember the mess that we happen to be in at the moment. So the mess we're in is what we think of. But we need to see in our daily lives a bigger picture of what God has done and is doing, not just our little world and our little needs. There's a huge lesson here in that. Rehearse some of the things that God has done. Understand. You see, if you have faith as a grain of mustard, like a little seed, God said you can move mountains. For us to have that kind of trust and that kind of belief in God is difficult. It's hard to walk by faith. It's easy to walk by sight. And to pray this kind of prayer increases our faith, our trust, our belief. If you did this, 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 and this, then you can do this also. See? So, a lot of our prayer is faith building before we ever make our request. 
Build your trust. Build your belief. Build your faith by rehearsing the things God has done so that you can have confidence in the things he will do. Because they wanted him to do something. Don't get me wrong here. Before this is done, they want him to do something. But they're reminding themselves what they've been and what he is and what he has been so that they can then believe what they request. Let's see, where was I? Uh, verse 25, And they took strong cities in a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards and olive yards and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs. They were rehearsing. They went through Egypt they went through the Red Sea and all your miracles. They got in the desert and rebelled. Then you brought them into a wonderful land that already had houses and fruit trees and gardens planted and cattle and sheep. And you drove out those people and you gave them that land. And they rebelled anyway. Unbelievable. Unless you know people. <laughs> Unless you understand human nature. Then it's believable. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and slew your prophets, which testified against them to turn them to you. The whole object of the prophets was to turn them to God, to point out their sins, to point out how they were like the world around them and that they needed to get out of it. That has always been the purpose. And yet Christ said that you stoned all the prophets. You've always been this way. And you know what? We're still that way today. Tell people they need to give up this system, this culture, this society, the way of the world and the way of Satan. Eat good food. Think good thoughts. Don't hear or see evil. And people don't like it. They don't want to hear it. That's what we're trying to do here, is to come out of this world and not be like it in any way, so that we don't commit its sins and partake of its plagues and eat our own children, as our friends and neighbors in this world are going to do, because of starvation. God doesn't want his people to be part of that. He doesn't want us to be killed by Satan as the remnant left behind when he comes to destroy the church. He wants us to go out obedient to him and to live his culture, his way, and not kill ourselves. Why will you die, O Israel? That's a strong message, but it's the message of the prophets all the way through Israel's history. And they've always reacted the same way. And the Bible is very clear in the prophecies that 90% of the church is going to reject the two prophets God sends at the end of the age and die at the hand of Satan and the beast in the world. Nothing has changed, even in the church of the living God. If you preach this prayer in Nehemiah, most of the church will reject you.
if you preach it in the spirit and the meaning of what was prayed here. Just the way it is. People don't want to hear. Do you see them flocking to the telephones and overrunning this property when they hear this kind of message? No way. But it's the message that God wants preached. It is the same message that has been here since man came on this earth. Adam and Eve rejected the society of God, hardened their hearts, and followed Satan. And with few exceptions, it's been that way ever since. Out of the 50 or 60 billion people that it is projected or estimated have lived on this earth, when it is all said and done, only 144,000 will have lived up to the standard of God to the point he would make them a part of the bride of Christ in the first resurrection. That's all. You are in a very strong position. Be one of those few. A very strong position. Because God has called you out of this world, he showed you the truth, and you're willing to listen to prayers like this one in Nehemiah. And though it may hurt, and though it may sound discouraging and frustrating at times because it's so hard to do what God wants to do and to actually, literally, truly separate ourselves from the thinking and acting of this world. You're willing to work at it day by day to actually change, to actually come out of her, my people. Most will not even listen, much less try to do anything about it. And if we continue to try hard to do something about it, God will not forget it. Can a woman forget her sucking child? No. No, she cannot. And God said he's that way with us. So let's listen to this prayer. Because it's us. It was written a long time ago. But it fits perfectly with the church today. Perfectly. Verse 27, Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who vexed them, and in the time of their trouble, we have a time of great trouble coming on the end of the world, the end of the age, the greatest trouble or tribulation that has ever been, right before us. So this is very pertinent for today. In their time of trouble, when they cried to you, you heard them from heaven, and according to your manifold mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. God is going to send men to help save us from our enemies, to preach Christ, to preach the Father, so that we might be delivered. But after they had rest, they did evil again again before you. He's just rehearsing the history of Israel here. Therefore left you them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had the dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried to you, you heard them from heaven. And many times did you deliver them according to your mercies. God has proven that his mercy endures forever, 
over and over and over again when his people would rebel and turn from him and then repent. Turn from him and rebel and then repent. He's always showed mercy. Thank God his mercy endures forever. And be thankful for it. And repent so they can be extended to us. That's what we need to do. And testified against them that you might bring them again to your law. Yet they dealt proudly and hearkened not to your commandments. We always have historically stood up with ego and vanity and pride and found a way somehow to reject the things of God. But sinned against your judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, and withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and would not hear. Yet many years did you forbear them, patient, waited, gave them opportunity, and testified against them by the Spirit in your prophets. God has shown great forbearance with the end-time church when it got off the track and then got way off the track and crashed. And we have not been what we ought to be. We've been too much like this world. God has been very patient. He's forborn with us for many years, giving us an opportunity to actually change. Yet would they not give ear, therefore gave you them into the hand of the people of the lands. This nation is about to go into the greatest captivity it has ever known. They will not listen. Nevertheless, for your great mercy's sake, you did not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for you are gracious and merciful God. So they rehearse that whole history. Now comes their request, their supplication. What they had in mind all along before they addressed God and gave him great reverence, respect, showed his mercy and what kind of a God he really is. Now, after you've gone through that much of this kind of prayer, don't you then feel a little more bold? A little more powerful? A little more like a lion in approaching God? The righteous are as a lion. Come boldly before the throne of grace. So rehearse and have firmly in mind what God is before you make a request of Him. Because it increases your faith and belief that that request might actually be honored instead of just a bunch of words that mean nothing. This is the kind of prayer that gets above the ceiling and you know it. You've prayed prayers, and so have I, that we know went no higher than eight feet. Never got through the drywall. And others we know we've connected with God in heaven. This is the kind that makes that connection. It was done in utter sincerity. <clears throat> so verse 32 now comes a request. Now, therefore, considering all you've done and all you are, our God, the great, the mighty, the terrible God, who keep covenant and mercy, does not go back on his word. Anything he says he does or that he will do, he does. He'll never break a promise to us. Let not all the trouble seem little before you that has come upon us. In other words, pay attention to it and realize that to us this is a big deal. To us who sit here waiting for patience and mercy, it's a big deal, God. Don't think of it as a small thing. 
Let not all the trouble seem little before you that has come upon us, on our kings, on our princes, on our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all your people since the time of the king of Assyria to this day. We could pray this as a church. All the confusion and separation and division and arguing and fighting that goes on within the church of God. We could say, Father, please don't look upon this as a small thing. Understand, it's big to us, and we're having difficulty. Howbeit, you are just in all that is brought upon us. We know we deserve the separation. We know we were laid a sin. We know we were weak. We knew we were filled with pride and thought we were okay spiritually. But you are just in all that you have brought upon us, for you have done right, but we have done wickedly. Attitude of humility, meekness, confession. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers kept your law and our commandments and your testimonies wherewith you did testify against them from top to bottom, from head to toe. Leaders and followers, we've all been unrighteous before God. For they have not served you in their kingdom and in your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and fat land which you gave before them, neither turned they from their wicked works. In the church, the ministry looks upon the Laodicean people as the problem, and the Laodicean people look upon the ministers as the problem. Whereas in truth and reality, we all have fallen short of the glory of God. Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that you gave to our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. God gave us this great land of Ephraim we live in today. I believe it's Ephraim, not Manasseh in the United Kingdom, Manasseh. He gave us this great land. He promised it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he put us in it. He gave us a beautiful land here. We have polluted it, wrecked it, ruined it, and now the soil is polluted, the air is polluted, the people are polluted. It's all polluted. And we are a sick people. Most of us will have cancer, diabetes, or heart trouble, or all three before we die as a people. We are in a plague of disease in this great promised land that God gave us and brought us back to. Nothing has changed. And we are servants in this land that God gave us to rule. We have become slaves to big corporations and to government. We are no longer a free people. We just aren't. Just the other day, some homeschoolers had one of their kids bump his head. Not badly. He had been trained in, as a paramedic, the father. He said everything looked normal. The kid wasn't hurt. But someone, a neighbor, called and said, a kid over here bumped his head, and these homeschoolers, and they sent out a SWAT team and took the child. Are we free in the land of the free and the brave? No, we're not anymore. We're servants in this great land because we have denied our God. We are servants in it, 
and it yields much increase to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. Yeah, the leaders, the politicians, the leaders of business are taking hundreds of millions of dollars home while we can barely pay our bills. That's where we've come to in this country. Also, dominion over our bodies, over our cattle, at their pleasure, and we're in great distress. You've got to go to the doctor or you're in trouble. They are now taking a census over our cattle and our chickens so they can control everything. This is an absolute prophecy of today. At their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal to it. They confessed their sins before God. They reviewed their history. They made a prayer to God in His great glory and honor and says, we repent and we are going to live by your ways from this day forward. And they took out a great sheet of paper and there was a long list of people who signed it and sealed it as something they would do before the great God. We made a covenant with God at baptism to follow in His ways. Maybe the exact right words were not used, but our intent was there. And we committed ourselves to God, and he committed himself to us by calling us out. And we sealed that. We are his bond servants, his slaves, to live our lives according to his will as ambassadors on this earth of the kingdom of God. Building booths is right here in this context. Temporary dwellings, showing that we are dwelling here temporarily until the kingdom of God comes to this earth, as pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles. We're just temporary. We're pilgrims, ambassadors, and strangers in this land. And we can't live like the people of this land. We have to separate ourselves from it in action and in thought and live up to the commitment we made to God, to obey God rather than man. And there's a long list here of people who signed that. Let's we'll skip down to verse 28. The singers of the Nephilims and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands under the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding. They separated from the world around them. They even gave up wives and children who are part of the land around them. Even as Christ told us, we would have to be willing to give up homes and lands, children, wives, and so on, and separate ourselves to worship the great God. If any held us back, we would have to separate from them in order to obey God. He even made that allowance in 1 Corinthians 7, that if you have an unbelieving mate, and they won't, and they obstruct you from obeying God, you can separate from them, divorce them, and you can marry again in the eternal. You are not bound to them anymore. As sacrosanct as marriage is, for the sake of the marriage to Christ, he is willing to set aside a human marriage if it means that person is being held back from obeying God. That's how serious God is. You know, we have trouble separating ourselves from the little things of this world. 
And yet God says, you must be willing to give up your home, your land, your mate, your children to come and serve me if it is necessary. We're going through the same thing on a spiritual level that sometimes becomes physical as it was in 1 Corinthians 7 in order to obey God. Is he serious? Should we be serious? They claved to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law. They swore and wrote it on a paper that they would walk God's way from now on, no matter what kind of pressure came upon them, which was given by Moses, a servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the eternal our God and his judgments and his statutes, and that we would not give our daughters to the people of the land nor take their daughters for our sons. What does it say in the New Testament? Do not marry in the world. That's why we have a policy against dating those in the world, because dating leads to marriage. They swore not to give their daughters or their sons to the people of this world. And God says we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We are not to marry outside the church. That is the law, the statute, the command of Almighty God. Now, are we going to pull away our shoulder and stiffen our neck and find a way around that and ignore it? And if the people of the land were uh, war or any victuals on the Sabbath or food to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. How much time do I have left on that tape? About, about five minutes? No, ten minutes? Well, let's, let's try to finish this chapter. There, there's an awful lot here, and I, I could spend a whole sermon commenting on it, but, but, but let's go on down and try in ten minutes to finish it up. We have in the past gone to the Feast of Tabernacles, and on the holy days and the Sabbath we'd go out to eat. They brought where? Food? out, we'd buy it on the Sabbath. Think we ought to? This year we kept the feast on our own property, separated completely from the world. I don't think people went out and bought food on the Sabbath or a holy day. I think that's an improvement. I really do. And that we would leave the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. They accepted the whole tithing picture, which culminated in the seventh year in which you released debt. You kept the first and the second tithe in the first and second year, added the third tithe in the third year, first and second again in the fourth and fifth, and added the third in the sixth. And then you forgave debts in the seventh and didn't even plant. That was the system that they had departed from, that they returned to right here in Nehemiah. Also, we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. If there was a special need, and they saw it, which they did at this time, they agreed to charge themselves what was needed to take care of the problem. 
for the showbread and for the continual meat offering and for the continual burnt offering of the Sabbaths, for the new moons, for the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings, to make an atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. They saw a need. They charged themselves to take care of it. But we'll see a little later in the chapter that they also kept the laws, the covenants, and the commandments that God had given them in addition. They didn't just give free will offerings that they agreed to, but they also followed God's tithing system and added this as an addition in verse 33. Let's see that. And we cast the lots among the priests, the Levites, the people for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God after the houses of our fathers at times appointed year by year to burn upon the altar of the eternal our God as it is written in the law. They made sure that they brought wood as an offering that the sacrifices could be burned with. Going on, verse 35, and to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all food of all trees year by year to the house of the eternal. Also the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstlings of our herds and of our flocks to bring to the house of our God to the priests that minister in the house of our God. So they had been going through the law, and they had not been following it. So they set their hand and swore to God that they would keep all his laws, and they, then they enumerated a bunch of them. It's interesting to me that they uh, emphasize the Sabbath and then the financial laws of God. Those are the two things that is so easy for people to forget. When you come right down to it, most people have always been motivated by money and by wealth. So we will break the Sabbath for the sake of a job or wealth. And we forsake God's financial tithing system for the sake of what we have in our pocket. And those are two of the things that are jettisoned first. And it's interesting that in Malachi 4, God emphasizes that. And here, these people with Nehemiah emphasized it as well. Because our selfishness is first seen so often through our pocketbook. Okay, verse 37, that we should bring the first fruits of our dough and our offerings and the fruit of all manner of trees, of wine and of oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithes of our ground to the Levites. We don't just read one scripture and say, well, we take the tithe of the feast. It's a different tithe that goes to the feast. There is a tithe that they bring all of to the Levites, as it says in Leviticus and Numbers. And then there's a tithe that you lay up in your house on the third and sixth year, and you give it to the poor and the stranger and the widow and so on. That is the system that they were accepting here. That the same Levites might have the tithes in all the cities of our tillage. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites take tithes. Well, they were commissioned to take tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes unto the house of our God. Remember, they gave the tithe to the priests, and then a tenth of that was given to the house of Aaron only. That's the way the law is laid out, Numbers 18. Uh, to the chambers, into the treasure house. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the corn, of the new wine, the oil, unto the chambers where are the vessels of the sanctuary 
and the priests that minister, and the porters and the singers, and we will not forsake the house of our God. They'll put God, his government, the ministry he commissioned to lead them and guide them in God's way first. So that was a part. Let's go into the beginning of chapter 11 since we went through that so fast. Because I want to make a point here. And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. They had volunteers to move to Jerusalem. Ten percent. God says in the end time, he is going to draw a remnant of ten percent of his people to rebuild Jerusalem and to make Jerusalem as villages or towns without walls. He's going to do the exact same thing again. God is going to have his tithe of the church. God believes in tithing. If you do not, you do not believe in God. God will have his tithe of the people, and he will have his tithe of that which we produce. He says so in Malachi 4. And he says, we will not be in his kingdom if we rob God. It is that clear, and it is that simple. And we can pull away the shoulder, and we can rebel, and we can stiffen our neck, as we always have, or we can be meek and humble and tremble at every word of God. Abraham believed in tithing, and he didn't just tithe that which he grew. He brought the tithe of war, even, though it is not specifically in the command of Leviticus. And he is the hole from which we are digged and which we are told to look to. He's the father of the faithful. I'm not going to belabor this. It's just here. And I will read it. And I hope we will hear and heed and not be as our fathers. Because the Sabbath and tithing and those laws are very, very important to God. And in repenting and turning to the eternal God and sealing their hand and swearing, those are the two things they mention. Should that be a lesson for us or not? We'll pick it up there next time.